Amen. Now, just a few things. I want you to notice, look in your Bible, and I want you to notice how chapter 1 is, is written in a normal sense, okay? Uh, and then when you get to chapter 2, you notice how all the margins shifted. And we didn't have time last week to point this out, but in chapter 2, as God begins to lay this out, chapter 2 is, is like is written in poetic form. And so th- this is God singing, basically, these words to us. And it's just striking to me that when God, because uh, there's, there's these amazing verses in chapter 2, as we looked at last week, and we're going to finish today, but that God didn't just write them to us. But he, he sings them to us. He wrote a poem to express his heart for us. That's why it looks different. Because it is different. There's nowhere in the Bible where you see this, 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 this part of God. This bare, open Amazing picture of who God is. Now, when you think about this story, when you think about what's happened, God telling his, his man, his prophet, his mouthpiece, his, his servant to go and marry a prostitute, and then to have kids, to start a family, you know, to... To someone unfamiliar with this story, you might think, well, I just don't understand why Hosea is getting punished. And you, over the last couple of weeks, have learned some profound truths about God, if you've been listening. They're profound truths, things that will change your life. And this is another one, is that what we're seeing here is that Hosea is not being punished. See, what we think is we think... You know, so someone did something wrong. Someone did something bad, and so they're being punished. And that's why God's calling them to do these things. But, no, Hosea is suffering, but he is not being punished. You need to think about that. Get your listening guides out. See, because there's no such thing as pointless pain in the life of a child of God. There's no such thing as pointless pain. Now, I'm sure there's some of you in the room that just receive that. You just write those blanks in and you just receive that truth and go, yeah, okay. And then there's some of you in the room that just you just hesitate a moment. You want to push back on that for a moment. You want to, whoa, and... And I would say that those of you that hesitate and push back have experienced this. See, if you just receive what that says, you have not suffered greatly. But there's some of you in the room that have just really suffered. And so that's, that's a... It's a hard truth to swallow. It's supposed to be a hard truth to swallow. Because here's the thing. See, suffering, it makes us like Christ. It develops holiness in unholy people. That's what suffering does. It doesn't feel like it. We don't like it. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces Endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Yeah, I mean, it, we can rejoice in what God's doing, but it's still suffering. See, the Lord is creating for himself a bride with beautiful character. But in order to get there, it's not going to be easy. Sorrow burns up a great amount of shallowness. So... Understand that when you are in a relationship with God, suffering is part of the courtship. It's a well-planned and and well-thoughtfully executed courtship. 
God knows what he's doing. And what he wants you and me to do is to trust him. And so you got to think of things you probably never thought of before. Like how does God respond when he suffers? You probably never asked that question before. But it's not by punishing us, it's by pursuing us. Because God suffers. God hurts. God feels. God is not like us, but we are made in his image. So we ended last week with this beautiful turning point in verse 14. Where God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, talking about his people, and bring her into the wilderness. And that's where we went to Psalm 81 and speak comfort to her. Because that's the place where we met. He's going to bring, he brings us, when we're wayward, when we stray away, he brings us back to the place we met. Much like, much like you might, on your anniversary, you might go back to the place where you first met each other. And remember what that was like. And all those emotions and memories flood back. Well, God brings us into the wilderness where we met him. See, what a mistake we make by thinking that God's love and God's judgment are vastly different things. That is such a mistake. No, I know I'm just bombing you this morning, but I got to. His judgment is his love. See, listen, the opposite of love is apathy. It's apathy. And so the fact that God is, is engaged, it cares enough, loves enough to, to, to judge and to move and to, to bring about, to stand in our path, to block our way. Remember last week, to do all these things. That's the farthest thing from apathy. That's a God who's utterly committed and utterly engaged and willing to do whatever it is to get our attention. Then verse 15, he says, I will give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So this imagery of how can the valley of Achor become a door of hope? The valley of Achor, what is that? That's remember when the, in Joshua chapter 7, when, when the people of God crossed over the Jordan and went in and, and after Jericho, they went to Ai and they suffered this tremendous defeat there. They went from their great, greatest victory to this tremendously painful defeat in the valley of Achor. Because there was sin in the camp and as they were defeating their enemy, Achan had hidden things under his, had stolen the spoils from uh, victory and hidden them under his tent. And God was, a lot of people died in the valley of Achor. It was a tremendous they went from this high, high moment to this tremendous defeat and humility and suffering because of their unfaithfulness. And, and God says, I'm going to take the Valley of Achor and make it a door of hope. I'm going to go back to the door of trouble and make it a door of hope. I'm going to forgive you for all you've done. I'm going to fill you with hope through what I do for you. Then look, let's read. Let's just read this poem in verse 16. And it came to be in that day, says the Lord. If you, if you ever just need some encouragement, just read these verses and meditate over these verses that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. They shall be remembered by their name no more. 
And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air and with the creeping things of the ground. The bow and the sword of battle I will shatter from the earth and make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer with grain and new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Remember Jezreel? Now it's not scattered, but it's planted. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her. Remember the first child who had no mercy. Remember that daughter born, no mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And I shall say, and they shall say, you are my God. Now, all of this has happened in the midst of what change has Israel made? Remember the declarations in chapter 1 of the unfaithfulness of the people and their their Baal worship, and there's allusions to that even in chapter 2. They've made no adjustment. They've made no change. There's not been some national movement of repentance or some about face or turn. But God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And he, he knows. No one knows the human heart like the maker and the constructor of the human heart. And he knows how, to, how we operate and how to get us from where we are to where we need to be. And in specific, he knows that the only way we can get rid of our idols is through the explosive power of new affection. You see... We can't just grit our teeth and tell ourselves to stop doing the things that we're doing. That will not work. You weren't designed that way. You're trying to make yourself do something that's against your your nature. Your nature is bent and it's broken and it's twisted. Your love is twisted. But, But understand, at the root of all sin is twisted love. But it's love nonetheless. And so the solution to sin is untwisting love, but it has to be love. It's not, it's not willpower. The way we're freed from the, the idols of our sin and our flesh and our desires is, is by new affection. When we fall in love with Jesus, when, we, when our heart is so consumed with the greatness and the splendor and the awe of of Jesus, then we don't want that anymore because we found something better. And so we need to understand and we need to say that I don't love him because he gives me better things. I love him because he loves me enough to give me himself. Because he is what's better. The gifts that he gives are good, but they're not better than him. So that leads us to chapter 3. What could this little tiny chapter that some say is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. What could it say? Verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Hosea, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes Of the pagans. Now, does this sound strange to you that that 
God would say these shocking and heavy and uh, weighty things and then end the verse by talking about raisin cakes. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice he says, notice the word love in this verse. Go again. Love a woman. That's one love. Who is loved by lovers. That's another one. Just like the love of the Lord who look at other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And I want you to see there's two different loves there. Now, they're all spelled L-O-V-E, but they're very different. And so when he says, go again, love a woman, maybe you put a square around that love. And then it says, who is loved by a lover, you put circles around those two. Just like the love of the Lord, that's a square. Who look to other gods and love, that's a circle. The circles are earthly, normal love, like you love pizza. The point of the raisin cakes is to, is to shock you at the difference of love. But those loves that we put a square around, those are bold loves. Those are divine loves. That's, that's the love of God. And so think about what's happening here. Think about how God reveals himself in various ways and through various means for us to understand him. Sometimes God reveals himself as a king, sometimes a, a shepherd, sometimes a father. But here the Bible is painting this powerful picture of God as a husband to his people. And this is one of the most powerful ways that God reveals himself. Look at Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, the reason that God does this is because there are things about God we can only learn through this perspective. Because we know just from what the Bible teaches us about marriage, from Genesis all the way through into the New Testament, that it is the human relationship that sets the course for our life as a whole. Now, remember in 1 Corinthians, we, we, I took a, an entire Sunday and talked about uh, singleness as Paul celebrates and elevates singleness in 1 Corinthians. And know that if you're here this morning and you're single, that's fine. That's wonderful. And if God gives you that gift, there are many advantages to that. But if you are married or when you get married... If you enter into marriage, you need to understand that it is the human relationship that will set the course for your life as a whole. No doubt about it. When it comes to human relationships, marriage is ultimate in priority. In human relationships, it's ultimate in priority. It's ultimate in intimacy. No one knows you like your spouse. In fact, your spouse oftentimes knows things about you that you won't even admit to yourself. But nobody knows you like. So it's ultimate in intimacy. It's also ultimate in potency. And this is what I mean. That there's no voice in your life that has the power to shape you like the voice of your spouse. It can wound you deeper than any other voice. And it can encourage you greater than any other voice. And I don't have time to get into all the ramifications of, but I would just simply say in this moment to be very careful about how you uh, steward the great power, the potency of your words in the context of marriage. Isaiah 62, 5. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, do you see that? I'm talking about words in the context of marriage and the potency of them. And notice how God talks about us. 
in this context of us as the bride and him as the bridegroom. And notice, see how meaningful Isaiah 62 can be when we actually think about what God's saying about us in the context of what he's saying about himself, or even think about what God says about our ultimate destination in the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible says in Revelation 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. How? What? What's his words of describing it? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the power and the potency of this context of marriage and God wanting us to understand him as a husband and us as his bride. But lest you get confused, let's understand that God is the husband to an unfaithful bride. We're unfaithful. And when we're adorned as a bride for her husband, the only reason why we can wear white is because he's given us the garments to do so. So this is why this chapter opens up with, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover. Notice the tenses here. And is, not and has committed. This is present tense. Is in the very ongoing act at this moment of committing adultery. But it doesn't almost seem possible for this to be one connected together sentence. Comma, all week, this is what I thought about. That comma drives me nuts. Only God could put that comma there. How could you possibly connect these two statements together? Just as the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. That is shocking. God wants his people to see a tangible demonstration of how he never abandons those he loves. And so the way he does that is by telling Hosea to persist in a seemingly shattered, hopeless, worthless marriage to Gomer. Now, my question about chapter one is not, you know, when I read go again and get a woman, you know, it's, and then you, you look at verse two and you realize that he's got to go purchase her back. And my question is not, well, why did Hosea have to go get Gomer back? That's not my question. My question is, why did Gomer leave Hosea in the first place? That's my question. Because remember, me and you are Gomer. Why did we leave in the first place? That's my question. After all, think about this. Why would Gomer run out on a man who promises to love her and to be faithful to her? Especially when everything about her background tells us that these are things that she's lacked all her life. So she finally has the thing she's been searching for. Well, why has she left? Well, did she, did she miss the fringe benefits of this previous lifestyle? The attention? the jewelry, the money? Was it that she returned to her old life because she 
felt shame. The shame of her past. And let's face it, that everyone in Hosea's circle, maybe they were, she felt judged or condemned. What about Hosea? How do you think Hosea felt? Man, let's just think for a minute. Here's God's prophet. Here's God's man. God's anointed mouthpiece married to a prostitute. Now, who's taking him serious? I'm just saying. Let's just be honest. If I'm married to a prostitute, you're not coming to this church to hear me preach. You're not. Why aren't you? Because you would immediately assume that because that was the case, there's something wrong with me. And that maybe I'm not trustworthy or, or sane. Or So how does Hosea feel? Then he's married to Gomer. Everyone knows her past too. So no one's, no, everyone thinks Hosea's crazy. What about her? What about the people who, who do accept Hosea? What about the people that Hosea interacts with? What do they feel like when, when Gomer enters? You think anybody's inviting them over for dinner? You think there, there's any community? See, I think all these things have to do with all of this. I wonder if maybe Gomer simply... Wish to go back to where she felt like she fit in. Even if it meant going back to something sad and depressing. I mean, let's be honest. Haven't many of us felt these feelings at times? Where we've experienced God's goodness... But maybe following him day in and day out begins to feel a bit stifling. Meanwhile, the world around you is constantly speaking into your ear. Giving you all these attractive options. You find yourself thinking, hmm, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't limit myself. Maybe I should get out there and experience all these things while I have the chance. I just want you to see that everything Gomer was leaving Hosea to get, she already had. And it's the same thing for me, and it's the same thing for you. When you leave, when you run away from God, whatever it is you're running to is less than what you already have. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense when we're just having this sort of conversation, but not if you're in the midst of it. You know, maybe you came from a not-so-stellar past like me. I heard the voices for a long time. Oh, you're unworthy. You can't lead people. You can't be a pastor. That's ridiculous. Look at how you grew up. Look at your jacked-up family. Yeah. You know, every time you sit in church, you, you look around at all these people. I remember. I remember 25 years ago. I remember being a brand new Christian. And I remember the naivete of thinking, look at all these people. who All these people have it all together. They know what to do. They... They know the words to these 
weird songs. They know when to sit. They know when to stand. Like, I didn't know any of that. And I, I just remember thinking, like, man, this is just, is this for me? Some of you, you, you come into church, and now some of you can be shocked by this because you're just so ignorant about what goes on around you. You don't pay attention. It just goes over your head. You don't even know why, why we do the things we do because all you think about is yourself. You don't realize people come into this place, and they sit down, and you know what? They're consumed in their mind with things like, I hope the pastor doesn't forget to tell us the page number because if he does, I'll never find my place. That's what I used to think. I wanted to bring a Bible to church, but I wouldn't because I couldn't find where the pastor was going to be. And just because I've been a Christian for 25 years, I haven't forgotten that feeling. And that's why every Sunday I tell you the page number. Because I remember there might be a Tony sitting out there who's too ashamed to bring a Bible because he can't find a place. And you know what? It's okay. I wish somebody would have told me it's okay to use the table of contents. It's okay. But I was just surrounded by people that were just consumed with themselves. For the most part, they, weren't, they, they knew what they were doing and they thought everybody else did. Blind to the reality around us. But listen, there's... Satan's pushing the same button over and over in hearts in this room every Sunday. Telling people that they don't belong. But you have a hard time convincing yourself that God and his people would actually ever accept you. Yeah. There's people who think, maybe I should just go back to my old life. I know what to do there. I know how to fit in there. I know how to belong there. See, we don't know why exactly Gomer left Hosea. But we kind of do, don't we? Because we've all left. Haven't we? Yeah. We have. But what we do know is that the same thing that happened to us happened to Gomer. She got herself into trouble. And she needed rescuing. You know, maybe when she first abandoned the marriage, she got out there and quickly ran out of money and had no means of supporting herself. And we don't know exactly. But she ended up alone and in debt with no way to get herself out of trouble. Look at verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. So Gomer had left Hosea. And she had sunk lower and lower and lower until she was all the way at the bottom. Now she had become a slave and was being sold at auction. Now there she is in the capital city of Samaria. We know how slaves were sold. We know exactly how female slaves were sold in this day. She would have been in a line waiting for her turn. And when they called her, she would have walked up and stood on a box and they would have stripped her completely naked. The only thing she could do is close her eyes and try to just imagine she was somewhere as far away from where she was. I mean, it's no doubt the lowest human point possible. She stands there facing the crowd. And then people begin to bid for property. It's a human being. They start bidding one higher, then another, then another, then another. 
And then suddenly in the crowd, she hears a voice and she thinks, That's, could that be? Could that be who I think it is? And as he, the bidding goes, she realizes, yes, it's the voice of her husband. Buying her back. Go home today and look up the value of one and a half homers of barley. The Bible's so specific. You'll find out it's 15 shekels of silver, which means her husband bought her back for 30 pieces of silver. Just like someone else would be bought for 30 pieces of silver. See, God steps into the marketplace of sin and then buys us out of the bondage of this world by the death of his son. We're the slaves sold on the auction block of sin. We are. We are Gomer. And listen, when we stand on the auction block of sin, here's what's happened. The world is bidding for us. It's bidding for, for our affection and our attention. It's bidding things like fame or, or money or wealth or prestige or influence or power or acceptance. or All these things are the world's currency. But as all of this is going on, then suddenly out of the crowd, we hear a voice call out a bid that, that shuts down all other bids. Once this bid is made, it's over. Once the voice says, I give the blood of my one and only son, it's over for the redemption of this sinner. And so we became his. And he took us and he clothed us. Not back with the dirty, filthy rags that we were wearing before, but no, the robes of his righteousness. See, look at verse 3. Look at what he says. Now, Hosea speaks to his wife, and I said to her, you shall stay with me many days, and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too will I be toward you. Oh, man. So let's go through this piece by piece. The first thing that I see here is that Hosea reassures Gomer of this long-term relationship. Notice, notice he says, you shall stay with me many days. He is establishing with her that this is, this is God establishing with us. This is Hosea establishing with Gomer that this is not some momentary thing. That, you know, no, no, this is a long-term I'm not bringing you back only to kick you out again in a week. I'm bringing you home to keep you. Then he says, you shall stay with me, with me many days. You see? See, Hosea emphasized her belonging to him specifically. He wasn't just paying a ransom. He wasn't just redeeming her out of trouble. He was redeeming her to himself personally and specifically. With me many days, you'll be mine. He was stressing the exclusivity of this relationship. He also was making sure what Gomer needed to hear more than anything, that you're going to be, you're a part of my family. You're going to be with me. Then Hosea gives Gomer boundaries. 
It's beautiful. He says, you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. It's just so beautiful because here's what we know. We know that in a loving marriage, it, it can only be made up of one man and one woman exclusively committed to each other. And so even though there's been all of this violation that's occurred in this relationship, he's inviting her back in to a clean slate, to a new, fresh start. It's an amazing reality. Then Hosea promises to be faithful to her. He says, so too will I be toward you. It's just amazing. See, this isn't, in, in a human context, in any human scenario, all the focus would have been on Gomer changing her behavior. Because Hosea hasn't done anything wrong. And so if this is going to work, if we're going to exist, if we're going to go forward, you, you have to change. But notice what he says. He says, but so too will I be toward you. Listen, he didn't have to say that. You could've, it could have just been a foregone conclusion because he's always been that way. But that's not, no, God wants us to know. so too will I be toward you. What a beautiful statement. So we see how God's love sort of is dissected. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Now, Suffice it to say, what, what we're talking about here is a clean break is needed for God's people to appreciate him for who he is. And so there's, there's many, verse 4 is speaking to many different things. It's speaking to the immediate context. It's speaking to the fact that, that, that God's people are about to have everything stripped away by the uh, impending doom of the Assyrians that's about to come upon them. Yeah. But it's also alluding to the fact of how God brings us to the wilderness. See, oftentimes what God does, he brings us to a place. And we've, we saw this all through chapter 2 where in the wilderness he takes away, he'll take away everything. He'll take away the good things and the bad things. He doesn't just take away the bad things. He takes away everything to get our attention to see him for who he is. So see, some of these are good and some of these are bad, but... They're all going to be gone. But why? Why does God work this way? Because of verse 5. Because of what it produces. Because afterwards, afterwards what? After this, after this stripping away, after this clean slate, after this wilderness season, the children of Israel shall return and they'll seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord. And his goodness in the latter days. That's why. See, David's been dead. But there's a descendant of David that's coming. The king is coming. Don't miss this. See, God longs for his people to come to him in awe of his goodness. That's what, look... They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. What God is doing through this whole process of redemption is bringing us to a place where we will come to him in awe of his goodness. See, in Jesus Christ, God walks into the marketplace of sin and purchases back his bride. Be reminded today 
How does that happen? Look back at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Go again. Remember, it was not us who sought him. It was he who sought us and then joined us to himself in this spiritual marriage. He courted us. He won our love. You did not get down on one knee and hold a ring up to God. That's not how that went down. He did that to you. If you know him, that's how it happened. If you're a part of his bride, that's how you became a part. He won your love. God's command to rescue Gomer is in spite of the glaring realities. She's not lovely. She's guilty. She's offensive. She's unworthy. But it doesn't stop him. He's not taken back. All the while, the voice in her head, no doubt, has never stopped speaking. Words of humiliation and guilt and worthlessness. And it just keeps playing like a track in her head. Around and around it goes. God couldn't possibly love a mess like you. You ever heard that? You ever heard the lie that you got to clean up your act? You got to get things together. You got to straighten yourself out. And then maybe, maybe you can come back to Him. Or the lie that you need to prove your value or your worthiness. To be accepted into his love. Maybe you've walked away. And you've given your heart to something or someone else. You've prostituted yourself. Before a God you know loves you. But she did it anyway. You ignored. What was at one time most important to you? To seek excitement in another? So where do we go from here? Understand Yahweh will not leave you there. He will not leave you there. Because when he suffers, not when you suffer, when he suffers, he will pursue you. He'll pursue you. His relentless love is proven by the fact that he paid the highest price possible. He says to each of us, I 
I will take you back at your worst. When you've rejected my love, you've sought happiness in other things. You've taken the perfect love of my heart that I've bestowed upon you and you've twisted it like a love for a raisin cake. He says, I'll take your shame and your brokenness, your last hope, and I'll transform it into a love that you never thought was possible. I'll take you back for many days. I'll fill your heart with a new affection. And I'll be to you the same way. Even though I've always been. And that's all I can ever be. I will say that because you need to hear that. He's saying, I'm going to meet you on the terms that I'm calling you to. I'm not calling you to something that I'm not willing to do. I'm not calling you to something. This is what we do. We call the guilty party to a higher standard than the innocent party to prove that they're worthy to come back into the relationship. But God says, I'm not going to do that to you. You're guilty. You're filthy. I'm pure. I'm spotless. But I'm going to call you back to me. But I'm going to let you hear me say that I'm going to meet you. And I'm going to be to you what I'm calling you to be to me. Maybe it is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I thought, what? What is the takeaway from Hosea 3? I think it's that God will not abandon you when you're at your lowest point. See, the thing that's most... makes God most unlike us is His grace. Let's stand and bow our heads.